Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you are about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce Attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and Founder of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm honored and delighted to introduce to you all a couple of our brilliant Murthy Law Firm attorneys. One is Jessica Beaver, uh, and the other one is Sabrina Vasa. Both of them focus their practice almost exclusively in the PERM Labor Certification Green Card Department. So today we're going to talk about the PERM recruitment process and guidance for each of you as employers on how you can make this process successful, hopefully to do the processing so that you can keep your employees for a long, long time so that you can get a good ROI, a return on your investment in terms of the uh, personnel at your company or business. So the overview in today's topic is six main subtopics. The first one is the labor certification in general. What is the purpose and why the Department of Labor requires the testing of the U.S. labor market? The second main topic is the able, willing, available, qualified U.S. worker. Do we really have that? And if there is an able, qualified U.S. worker, then obviously the PERM green card process cannot go through. The third is what is the role of us Muthi law firm or your attorneys in the labor certification process because there are very clear things that we can and cannot do as the lawyer as opposed to being the employer, which then comes to the fourth major topic, which is our subtopic, which is the role of you as the employer and the best practices that you need to keep in mind for recruitment. The fifth topic is what we should not be doing in the recruitment, what we call the don'ts for recruitment. And finally, how can we prepare and create a recruitment report with you as the employer preparing the report or giving the guidance and giving the outline so that the lawyer can kind of fill in the blanks and follow the format in which the Department of Labor approves it so that we can actually hopefully get the approval so that once the perm is over, we can then go, that is, as you know, the first major stage in the three-part process for the individual employee to obtain the green card. So with that, let's maybe, Jess, can I start with you, where you will go over a little bit about what is the purpose of testing the U.S. labor market. Sure. So the purpose of testing the labor market is to show that it's Basically, that the, there are not enough U.S. workers who are able, willing, qualified, and available for the position, and also that the employment of the foreign national would not displace these U.S. workers or adversely affect the wages and working conditions of the U.S. workers. Okay. And what's the able mean? So, Sheila, at this point in the process, the job duties have been set, the requirements have been set, um, the salary location has been set. And so what the employer is looking for is to see if a worker is able to perform the job duties as is customarily performed by other U.S. workers who are similarly employed. And then in looking at willing, the employer is looking to see if they're willing to accept the job as offered 
if they're willing to accept the salary as offered, um, if they're willing to accept the location of the job, and if the job does have a travel or relocation requirement, they have to be willing to do that. And that needs to be very clearly set forth, both in the advertisement on the ETA 1989. And so when we're going over the testing of the labor market and the able and willing, Remember, there are, we were actually talking about this just this afternoon in our attorney weekly attorney meeting at the Murthy Law Firm, where we talked about multiple cases where an employer agrees to sponsor the foreign national, but for whatever reason had to discontinue the process because of financial ability of the employer, the market change in conditions, etc. So be careful. And although we as your immigration, employment-based immigration attorneys, wouldn't be involved with the lawsuit or the litigation in defending you because we focus obviously on U.S. immigration law. The risk for you as an employer is you have to be careful that your company documents or in the offer of employment, whoever your corporate or employment lawyer is, has the wording in a manner and language that protects you so that if you have to discontinue the green card processing for any reason, you are not going to be stuck with a potential lawsuit and losing hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars for false falsity or misrepresentation or fraud or mis, you know, some somehow misleading the person into thinking there's a green card. So now we've talked about an able worker, a willing worker, an available U.S. worker. Uh, Jessica, can I have you discuss the qualified worker? Sure. Just uh, one last point about that available is just making sure, can the person accept the job now, not in the future, not, you know, upon graduation, just making sure that they are able to accept now. Um, that job. And then also when you are looking at if they're qualified, do they have the education requirements? Do they have the experience requirements? Do they have special requirements? You may have a certification or technology. Um, keep in mind that there are different ways Keep in mind that there are different ways um, that you're going to kind of look for these things. Initially, you'll just be looking, you know, for the education and experience on the face of the resume. You really will probably be digging into, you know, contacting the applicant with those special requirements. Um, similarly, with the knowledge and ability to perform the job duties, you want to show that any worker that's disqualified for knowledge and ability, meaning they cannot perform those job duties that you've listed in H-11, they could not be trained in a reasonable amount of time. Okay. Similarly, okay. oh, I was going to add that the regulations don't define what a reasonable amount of time is. Mm -hmm. However, if the Department of Labor can, you know, Google that technology or look up that certification and someone could complete it with a simple online tutorial training course, the Department of Labor is going to come back and say, you know, you could have trained that worker. So you really want to show that documentation, really, if they don't have the knowledge and ability, that it would take you, you know, six months to train, a year to train, and that, you know, your business would not be able to handle that. So just to kind of quickly go over and summarize this whole, you know, issue of the available, willing, available, qualified worker. So if when you run the newspaper advertisement and you get a whole bunch of resumes of people who look very, very well qualified and who are like, wow, this person's, you know, we had only asked for a BS or equivalent and five years of experience for this EB2 position, but guess what? This person has 15 or 20 years of experience, so we're pretty much out of luck. No, you may not be, because as uh, Sabrina and Jessica just explained, if the worker, if this new potential worker, U.S. worker actually says, oh, the, the offered salary for that position is 80000 but I'm making 150000 I'm not willing to take less, guess what? 
than that whole ability of willing. They have to be willing to accept the job at the salary offered, which is the U.S. Department of Labor prevailing wage, which for which you obtained that before filing the labor certification, which is part of it. So don't ever panic when people are very qualified and you sometimes the employer or the lawyers think, oh, my God, we need to discontinue the process. Don't worry about it. Just to clarify, the U.S. worker is generally, according to the regulations, either a U.S. citizen or a U.S permanent resident or a U.S. national or a foreign worker, an alien who is legally permitted to work permanently in the United States like an asylee or a refugee. So from there, let's now the second major. So the first, this is the first part. Remember, we talked about the labor certification in general, the purpose of testing the labor market. And the second is the able, willing, available, qualified U.S. worker. So we've gone through those two. Uh, summaries. Now we're going to the third part of today's uh, overview, which is the role of your law firm or the attorney in the labor certification process. So Sabrina, can I have you start, please, about what exactly would the role be for the attorney? Sure, Sheila. Let me start by saying what an attorney cannot do. An attorney cannot interview applicants or make any hiring decisions in the recruitment process. The one exception to this is if an employer, as a part of their company, has an in-house counsel who normally handles the interviewing process, then that uh, attorney would be allowed to do that. The other thing is an attorney cannot review or screen resumes before the employer reviews them to determine if a candidate is qualified. And I know a lot of companies think, well, my other attorney does it or somebody does it. The truth is, if the attorney or law firm is actually reviewing the resumes or screening it and advising you, go ahead, do this, do this, do this, that is actually illegal, unethical, could get the attorney disbarred. And in fact, a very large law firm in the United States lost thousands and thousands of individuals and employees and actually was subject to a Department of Labor investigation. And I know that they lost several millions, if not tens of millions of dollars in legal fees because they were breaking the law in reviewing the screening, the resumes and reviewing the uh, resumes for um, the employer in violation of what you cannot do. So with that, that's what the employer or the attorney is not supposed to do. What can the attorney do, Jessica? So the attorney can advise about the legality of the decision to contact. You know, is the employer following Department of Labor guidance? The attorney, you know, like we said, is not making the decision for you, but is basically making sure that you're following the Department of Labor guidance. Um, They can provide advice on any and all legal questions concerning compliance with governing statutes, regulations, and policies. And basically that can be to provide information on what is qualified, willing, able, and available. You know, kind of they can give you the tools, but you ultimately, as the employer, have to be reviewing those resumes. Okay. And so we've also said this, which is sort of a clarification and a fine-tuning of what both Sabrina and Jessica just talked about. If the employer, if you as the employer determine that a candidate is not qualified, then we as your attorneys can and can and will review the resume with you if you so request to make sure that your reason for rejecting the worker is a lawful reason because you absolutely want to make sure that you're not rejecting it on what they consider subjective or fluffy grounds or criteria that is not considered as valid uh, and proper according to the Department of Labor. 
And also an important point to remember is that the attorney cannot sign the recruitment report because sometimes law employers will be like, well, you've done, you've helped me, you know, just sign it and file it. No, that's not actually permissible. It's a violation of Department of Labor regulations because those documents are signed under penalty of perjury and the person or the entity doing the actual interviewing and screening is supposed to sign the recruitment report, the person in charge, whether it's the head of HR or the president of the company. So that was the third main subtopic. Now we're going to the role of you as an employer and the best practices that you as an employer or company needs to follow in the recruitment perm process. So Sabrina, what is the employer's primary role? Well, Sheila, as I said, since the attorney cannot review resumes, it is the responsibility of the employer to review every single resume that they receive to determine if the applicant meets the minimum requirements. So what they're looking for is do they meet the education requirement, the experience requirement, and any special skill requirements. And it's important to note that this process is not like real-world recruitment because the employer is looking to just see if the applicant meets the minimum qualifications. They're not looking at what they prefer or what they would like. It's just the baseline minimum qualifications, and they cannot disqualify an applicant for requirements that are not set. Um, in the ETA 989. Absolutely. And that is the crux of the issue. The minimum, minimally qualified candidate is all that we can ask for in a regular labor certification with most employers. The only exception where you can actually pick the best candidate is with like university professors, what they call, um, I forget the term now, it's blanking out, but the, the where you have, you represent a university system where you can hire the professor that is actually the best qualified for the job because you're training the future workforce of America and candidates. Um, so that's the only exception. Jessica? And I just wanted to, to mention what Sabrina was talking about. Although we're not getting into the actual advertisements and what you, you may want to put in the ad text, just keep in mind that when you're reviewing a resume, you're seeing if they have the absolute minimum, the education and the experience. You're probably going to have to contact them to see if they really have those special skills. You also want to make sure that when you are getting these resumes that you keep them in a safe place and that you document all contacts with applicants. Um, I know it's very easy to kind of make a chart, make sure that you're, you know, keeping all of that straight. That way you also want to, you know, be taking down any date, times. If you're calling, you know, have the phone logs as well as any emails you're sending. You want to just keep a copy of it. It makes a, you know, good record itself. Um and basically want to keep notes if you have any interviews all together because that will go in your compliance file. Basically, documentation is key because the Department of Labor is really looking at now the resumes, reasons for disqualification, and all uh, contact attempts made for, for applicants. Sheila, along those lines, the Department of Labor is looking to protect U.S. workers who are able, willing, available, and qualified. So it is the burden of the employer to show that they recruited in good faith and that you know they did everything that they could to investigate whether there was an available worker to that end there cannot be passive recruitment you know for so for example if an employer just calls and leaves a voicemail for the applicant that's not good enough they really need to follow up 
and document all of the attempts that they made to contact. So even though in the real world, that may be enough for most HR people to say, I left the person to voicemails, since you can't prove it or track it easily by documentary evidence or with documentation, it's much safer. I know in the olden days, pre-email internet, we always used to say, send a certified mail return receipt requested addressed to the candidate so that there is proof that the employer met the requirement as opposed to just first class mail where the person says, I never got the letter and the employer insists I mailed the letter etc. Uh, and voicemail clearly or an e- now an email actually if the person writes back and says I'm not interested thank you or found another job that could actually be better if the person replies back to that email so in a way in the in the last 20 years with email there's actually more choices because now you have a pap- sort of a paper trail in writing from the candidate confirming that she or he is not interested in that position. And kind of talking about when the employer, you know, is reaching out to these applicants, you want a person who normally interviews and consider considers applicants, not just for the labor certification process, but just, you know, in general for your company, keeping in mind that that, that employee, that beneficiary that you're sponsoring should have no involvement in the recruitment process. Also, if the resume is ambiguous to these, to their qualifications, when in doubt, contact. It doesn't hurt to contact applicants. Um, It can be helpful, especially, like I said, if it's unclear with their education and uh, experience. And when you are contacting these individuals, a good rule is to contact within 14 days of receiving the resumes because you want to be showing that good faith recruitment that Sabrina was talking about and in trying to reach out to those U.S. workers. Because an additional delay about 14 days is not considered as good faith. And really, even though in the real world you might take a few extra days, you cannot if it's a perm process. And Sheila, again, it's important to contact the applicant directly. So if you are calling a number, it's not good enough to speak with a spouse or somebody else in the house. You should actually get in touch with the applicant. And as you were saying, certified mail may seem a little antiquated, but by sending that certified mail with a return receipt, the employer is showing that they took every step that they could to contact the applicant. Okay. And then also, what about the reasonably detailed notes of the conversation that you made with the candidate about why the person doesn't wish to join or can't join so that you're covering yourself? And you consider all resumes up and until the time of filing the labor certification. Now, the employer is obviously by law not required to hire anyone that's recruited through the LC process. Supposing you find that you did get some really strong resumes, you don't have to. Now, if you have multiple positions open in the company and you make a couple of offers and you still have a couple of positions that you could use the green card the the person for whom you're processing the green card, that is perfectly fine and legal. But if you find a qualified worker, then you don't have to hire that person under this whole perm recruitment sort of process. However, then you will not be allowed to file the labor certification based on those recruitment efforts for this candidate unless you had multiple OPAL positions and you could show that you had a need for all of these those candidates as well as your current candidate. So... And- yeah. I was going to say, just to keep in mind that if for some reason you do find that qualified U.S. worker, you've elected not to hire them at that time, the case can't continue at this moment, but you can re-recruit in a couple of months to still uh, test the labor market again to move forward for your... To uh, see the circumstances have changed. And remember, right. if you, this person is working with you, this employee, on H-1B status, the H-1 remains valid. Nothing happens to the H-1B status of that person for the next two or three years, even if the PERM labor certification part of the process is denied for that person. 
So let's go to the next major subheading or topic, which is what should not be done for during the recruitment process by the employer. So what are the don'ts for recruitment? So Sheila, first of all, do not tell the applicant a position is filled by a foreign national or that it's in support of a labor certification. Like we mentioned before, you do not want to uh, reject overqualified applicants, people that may have more education or experience than you're looking for, because remember, it is minimally qualified. And then just from an HR standpoint, you, of course, don't want to ask any legal questions, marital status, sexual orientation, disability, age, ethnicity, race, citizenship, religion, just like you would in any um, other employment opportunity. One of the things you can ask is if they require sponsorship, Sheila, but you should definitely not ask or specify exactly which documents that they need to show. Um, so, for example, if you can ask if they need an H-1B sponsorship, but again, you know, don't actually specify that. Well, the I-9 need would hopefully show. have gone through it when the initial start of the employment, the HR, the I-9 documents that an every employer has to show compliance with would probably go through what are the legally permitted documents. But if the foreign national or the applicant requires an H-1B sponsorship, obviously you don't have to now hire the new person who requires H-1 sponsorship because you're going to be back in the same boat having to do the same sponsorship all over again. And the other thing, Sheila, you cannot reject an applicant for subjective reasons. So you can't reject an applicant because they were not outgoing or because you didn't think that their their personality fit into the culture of the company. And you cannot reject an applicant because you feel like they're only taking this job as a stepping stone onto, onto something bigger or better. These are all subjective reasons that are not allowed. Okay. You also um, cannot reject for salary unless you've informed the applicant of the offered wage for the sponsored position and the applicant has then rejected the salary and removed themselves from consideration. So like the example Sheila was giving, the offered wage is 80000 They say, I only take one twenty. I, I, I reject and cannot take that. Um, then they've kind of removed themselves from consideration for the job. Also, you can't reject applicants who, who live outside the area just based on the resume alone. Remember that you have to be contacting them to see if they're willing to accept the job. Okay, good. So that is the what, we sh- what an employer should not do or should keep in mind during the recruitment phase. And the final and the last part of the PERM labor certification and how we can have a rock-solid filing or case is the recruitment report, which is the summary of everything that you as the employer has done in terms of reviewing resumes, talking about who's qualified, who's not qualified, what are the lawful reasons for rejection, et cetera, that you're going to go through. So I think Sabrina is going to explain what must be described uh, in the recruitment report. So, Sheila, the recruitment report is created at the time of filing the LC, but it's not submitted to the Department of Labor, usually until an audit requests the information. And the recruitment report describes the steps that were undertaken during recruitment, and it lists the number of resumes the employer received, the number of candidates hired, and the number of U.S. workers rejected. And those rejections are categorized by the lawful job release reasons for rejecting the applicant. Now, it is incredibly important for the employer to keep those detailed notes during the recruitment so that when they are providing it with the recruitment report, all the information is provided. Um, As you were talking about earlier, 
for example, in phone conversations, the employer should have a log of when the call was made, how long the call was, what was the outcome and the substance of the conversation, and all of this information should be provided in the audit response. And you know what? If it's a business phone line, which most of us as employers have business phone lines, there's actually on the detailed thing, the date, the time, and whom you called and how long you spoke to that person that will corroborate the information that you are claiming when you say, I called this number for this particular candidate on this time, unlike maybe many of our residential or home lines, which may just have a big chunk of time that you're allowed to on the voice unlimited plan, so to speak. The safe way is to send an email, as you said, because mm -hmm. then you have a written detailed log of what the communication back and forth is. And there are cases as recent as a month, two months, three months ago, all from the 2016 calendar year where Department of Labor has either approved or denied cases saying, sorry, we don't believe there was good faith contact or recruitment, and therefore the recruitment re re report you know, in, did not cut the mustard in the uh, audit stage. And just as a reminder, you have to have the recruitment report signed by the employer. Like we said, the attorney will not be signing that on your, ha on your behalf. And just an interesting kind of side note is there was um, a case this summer that talked about trying to also keep a copy, a signed copy of your ET-989, just so you have that, you know, also. It's not required to be in that compliance file. Um, it's not required to, to have that copy, but it's a good idea to have it for your records should you need to show um, it through an audit or the government asks for it. And so just as Jessica was saying, we need to provide, as employers, you will need to provide the recruitment report in the event of an audit. So you need to have all of this information and documentation kept very carefully. There can obviously be no room for ever error on the recruitment report. So it's important that as employers, you double check everything in the report. Another recent Balka case actually from August 25th of 2016 affirms the denial of a case because the employer listed that they had received 62 resumes in their recruitment report. So this was obviously in the audit when actually they had only received 61 resumes. So it was a very small, simple, almost a typo in on the Excel spreadsheet. But based on that, the Department of Labor, actually the Board of Alien Labor Certification Appeals or BALCA, which is the appeal body for the Department of Labor decisions, reaffirmed the decision, the denial. So something as silly and little as that, which shouldn't be the reason for a denial resulted in the denial and after wasting and spending and investing thousands and thousands of dollars and a lot of time and effort to go through the perm process you don't want to be in a position where you're dealing with this type of a denial also remember that the audit file must be retained for five years um, you have to prepare it but you don't provide it unless it's there's an actual request and there's an audit by the department of labor as Sabrina just pointed out. And if we can summarize in one sentence, it is take this entire process very seriously. Remember that most, if not all audits, generally request copies of the resumes of the recruitment report of any documentation that we or you as em employers have shown good faith recruitment. Just a simple statement from the employer saying, well, nobody applied for the position that there were no qualified US applicants will be clearly not sufficient. The employer cannot cure the defect in the process by later on trying to clean up and now say, well, I'll, I'm happy to interview the candidate now to see if the person is qualified or is willing to take the job because then there's usually a huge time lag and then that means that the person who was available back then is no longer available for the job.
So with that said, uh, as I told you, this was the last uh, subtopic that we wanted to cover. So today with you, we have gone over the overview of the labor certification process, why the U.S. Department of Labor expects a testing of the labor market, whether in fact there was no other able, willing, qualified U.S. worker that was willing and ready and able to do that job, what is the role of the attorney, what is the role of you as an employer, and the best practices that you need to keep in mind while going through the recruitment in the firm process, what you should and shouldn't do in the recruitment process, and finally, how to maintain and keep a rock-solid, good, detailed recruitment report. So, uh, you know, as an employer myself and somebody that's been doing the PERM process uh, for employers for over 22 years in my firm before doing it for several years in other law firms where I worked in, and for those who joined the call later, I am Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. You know, it is important because for all of us as employers, our employees are our most valuable asset in our business. I don't care what you're doing, whether you're an insurance company, a technology company, a law firm, the most valuable assets in our business is not the machinery, the equipment, the computers, the laptops. It's always our people in majority of the cases. And so by taking good care of the, the people, by following all of the strict requirements in the PERM process, the time and money that you are investing in the PERM process will yield you great results because your employees will hopefully stay with you for a really long time and give you back more than double, triple, 10 times, 100 times of your investment by staying with you and your business for a very, very long time. As I've often said, employers and employees are two sides of the same coin or you can't clap with two hands. You need two hands to clap. And we should remember that as good employers, that we are stewards who are responsible for helping our employees to come and give them, give their best to you, to your business, so that you can continue to be extremely profitable. So on behalf of Jessica Beaver, Sabrina Vasa, and the entire Murthy Law Firm team here at the Murthy Law Firm, we thank you for taking time to learn and understand PERM issues. If ever you need help with the strongest and the best legal team to file your green card case, please don't hesitate to contact us by phone or by email. And you know our world-famous website, www.murthy.com. Thank you so much and have a great day.